This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. The food pyramid suddenly sprouts arms and has a beer in one hand and a glass of wine. wine. (laughs) Food pyramid with a shot balancing on top. We don't wildly speculate on this show except for the first half and the second half. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk about PhD coursework. Does it really matter? Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 94. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Good evening, Dan. Hey, Josh. Finally um, back together again in the studio. Very excited to be here. Yeah, it's a great evening, a warm warm summer night here uh, in North Carolina. Yeah, but not quite so gross as it sometimes gets this time of year. So I was pleased for a little bit less humidity. Yeah, plenty of humidity to come. I was actually in the mountains this past weekend, and it was so awesome for the evenings and the mornings to actually be cool before the heat of the day. That's the one thing we kind of miss is... It's what I miss about living in the north is the jacket. You have to take the jacket in the morning. Yeah. Or if you go outside at night, you're actually cold. Yeah, here you walk out the door at 8 a.m. and you're like, "Eh, that's hot. (laughs) Well, and the blanket of mosquitoes usually keeps me pretty warm here, so that's nice. But Dan, to refresh us, we have a really tasty beer, very different than anything we have had on the show before. Okay, tell me a little bit about it and I'll take a sip. Well, first, Dan, as we mentioned last week, we have partnered with our friends at Promega, and and they were kind enough, Dan, I got home yesterday and had a package on my doorstep from our new friends at Promega, and they sent us this really cool handwritten card and some beers. And the beer is quite special, so tell me the name of it, and then I will try to describe it. Hi, Dan. This is the Wisconsin Brewing Company Refresh Rattler, Grapefruit Rattler. And... I think your enunciation was good on that. It's not rattler like a, the snake. No, no snakes. R A D L E R. I hate snakes, Dan. I hate them. The, can I tell you the first thing that I taste? What do you taste? Uh, the first thing that I thought I tasted was grapefruit. Um, but well, it I, says grapefruit. Yeah, yeah. I, I realize that really should be the second thing I taste. The first thing I taste is sweet. It is. Um, it is a much sweeter. Is it, is it a beer or is it some kind of malt malt liquor they sent us? I'm glad you asked, Dan. Would you like to know what a Rattler is? Would you? Is it a thing? It's a. It's a defined word. Yeah, it's yeah. not just the name of that. No, no. A Rattler is an actual type of beer drink. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, the the history is kind of interesting of a Rattler. So apparently, in the 1920s in Germany, there was an innkeeper named Franz Kugler who was in the small town of Diesenhofen, and apparently there was. I learned there was a great cycling boom of the Roaring Twenties. Are you aware of this in Germany? Of course I'm not. How would I know that? <laughs> Apparently on a, a beautiful day in June in 1922, 13,000 cyclists ended up at uh, Kugler's bar. And uh, he How ran- many? 13,000. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah. And so anyway, he was running out of beer quickly. So I don't he, like where this is going, Josh. <laughs> so anyway, he apparently had all this lemon soda in the in the storeroom that he couldn't really get rid of. So he started mixing the beer with this lemon soda, and okay. uh, it actually was a big hit, and the Rattler was born. So a Rattler is a mixture of some kind of citrus soda and beer? That's it, Dan. It's a mixture of a classic lager and a fruit soda. 
This is a brand new beverage and a brand new flavor that I don't think I've had before. So that's exciting. Yeah, and you know, this is actually even cooler. So it turns out uh, this Rattler, this Refresh Rattler from Wisconsin Brewing Company was made in partnership with Campus Craft Brewery, uh, which is actually some students at the University of Wisconsin School of Agriculture um, who every year come up with a beer and they partner with Wisconsin Brewing Company. They brew it and market it themselves every year. New beer. This is one of them. I got to say, I like it. Um, This is a hot weather. You make this ice cold. You sit on the deck or in the boat or wherever you happen to be. It's kind of low gravity, right? It's 3.2% ABV. 3.2% ABV, so... So take this one out on the road with you. I have to tell you, Josh, I had... Some... Oh, take it on the road with not you. On the road. <laughs> not on the road. Not on the road. We do not condone drinking you it. Cut that out. <laughs> on your next trip and then stop when you, somewhere. When you're cycling. When you stop. Yeah, yeah next cycling fine. trip. Yeah. No, it's yeah, probably not. A, it's probably a still illegal, beer. isn't it? This is a cycling beer. Isn't it still illegal? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, probably. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we should move on. Yeah. So thanks to our friends from Promega for sending the beer. And Josh, while we are on the topic of Promega, we do want to thank them for the support for this episode. And what they want our listeners to know is that they actually have a technical support team here to answer any kind of random questions that PhD trainees or you mean, you mean random questions like what's a Rattler? Like, what's a Rattler? I don't know if they'll know that, but but it's worth asking. I think more like, how do I interpret the results I got from, from this kit? What reagent should I be using here? What does this step in the protocol mean? Um, they actually have a team of scientists ready to help out other scientists, and you can uh, either call them or reach out to them online. Just go to promega.com slash PhD support. I love that chat technical support. That's the best way to do it. Yeah, I hate talking on the phone. Dan, I also wanted to thank Irene, our newest Patreon patron. Thank you, Irene. Yeah, and we are so thankful for all of our supporters through our Patreon page. If you'd like to become a Patreon patron, you can go to patreon.com slash hellophd or click the Become a Patron button on our website and you will get an invitation to our Slack channel just for our Patreon patrons. Yeah, this week we have been kind of discussing last week's episode about mental health and we're having an interesting discussion about Uh, that last episode. So feel free to become a patron and join that group. All right, Dan, are you ready for some science in the news? So ready. All right, Josh, we are a little bit late on uh, the breaking news nature of this story, but I wanted to cover it anyway. This story actually revolves around ethanol. Who would have guessed? Oh, good. We haven't talked about ethanol for at least uh, 30 to 45 seconds. Yeah, I think it's been at least that long. So, uh, If you remember, Homer Simpson one time observed that alcohol is the cause of and solution to all life's problems. And that sentiment was not new. I think humans have been consuming fermented beverages that contain alcohol for as long as we have had civilization, 10,000 years. And the relationship over that entire period has been kind of uneasy because we know the upsides, the benefits. People did it to preserve uh, harvests and they did it to feel good and they did it to socialize. But we also have for a long time really understood the downsides. More recently, we've understood kind of the medical causes of those downsides. So liver and heart disease, birth defects, the number of traffic fatalities that happen around the world due to alcohol, the increases in addiction, the impacts of depression, um, physical aggression, cancer. These are all the, the negatives of alcohol. And yet, we are a society that still loves it and, and we still consider it part of our culture. It's, it's part of this show every it's week. It's part of the show every week. It's part of the graduate school culture. Um, and 
there has been research more recently that suggests there are some upsides. Maybe there are some benefits to consuming small amounts of alcohol on a regular basis. So there have been observed some improvements in cardiovascular markers, uh, resistance to type 2 diabetes, and there are many observational studies that have found that moderate drinkers outlive teetotalers or abstainers and have less heart disease. But those observational studies can't prove that the alcohol is the reason those people live longer. Maybe there are other factors. So you're saying sort of these correlations that on average people who are light to moderate drinkers, uh, social drinkers, if you will, are outliving people that completely abstain. That is the observation, but of course that could be because those people are in a different socioeconomic background. Maybe they have other habits, like they have a larger friend group or a social structure that's better. So there are confounding variables that are difficult to pull out. And so what the NIH wants to do, I think, is to take those observational studies and, and come up with a conclusion about it. So they wanted to explore those questions more deeply. And at the end of their study, what they would like to do is to make dietary recommendations. Right now, there is no recommendation that says if you abstain from alcohol, you should start drinking. Well, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? It would be totally crazy. They can't <laughs> you, make that. Could you imagine if on, on the food pyramid, there's like, I'm imagining, you know, you can visualize the food pyramid with the vegetables on the bottom and the the food pyramid suddenly sprouts arms and has a beer in one it's hand a beer, and a glass, glass of wine. wine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to draw this and send food it in. Food pyramid with a shot balancing on top. FDA, call me. Yeah. So I don't know that they would take it to that level, but if people could live longer by consuming a small amount of alcohol, if there actually were measurable, demonstrable health benefits, that's something that they could theoretically recommend and, and maybe recommend it to the groups that would benefit the most. So what they did is they launched a 10-year, $100 million study to enroll 7,000 participants and measure the impact of drinking just one serving of alcohol per day on the cardiovascular health of the patients and the life expectancy. And they called the trial the Moderate Alcohol and Cardiovascular Health Trial, MACH. How do you get in on this? Well, Josh, I'm glad you didn't ask because they started recruiting volunteers in January of this year. Ah! And then, this is where the news comes in. Back in March, the New York Times... uh, got access to some emails uh, through a Freedom of Information Act request. And what it revealed was that NIH employees had approached executives from Anheuser-Busch, InBev, Heineken, and these other alcohol companies and asked them specifically to donate the money to sponsor this study. So are any warning bells going off in your head? Hmm. So theoretically, these companies could have some incentive to the results showing that Alcohol indeed was was helpful and that this would probably be a a way they could boost their sales. And that's kind of what they were promised. So in some of these emails... That's what they were promised? Well, okay. That's that's right. Okay, because let me me back up. You know, I'm a a believer in the NIH and their mission. Absolutely. Um, So, you know, and I know budgets are are tight with the NIH. Um, and, And I know a lot of the funding... The, and I know the NIH has a couple pots of money to draw from. I know they have uh, certainly the public funds that come in through appropriations from Congress, but I also know there's the NIH Foundation, uh, that the NIH actually has a, a fundraising arm that's able to to raise money from private donors. And I assume that's where, where these funds were coming from. Um, and so, you know, you could see there being a way where the money comes from a certain source, but that's not at all directly linked to the researchers who are doing the study. Very excellently explained. Thank you for doing that. That's exactly where the money came from. It was uh, these 
companies were asked to donate through the, that foundation that you mentioned, and it is a private foundation that supports the NIH. The leaders of the study claim that even though the money was provided by these alcohol companies, just like you said, Josh, they had no part in the design of the study. They wouldn't be able to influence the outcome. But the reason that this is a little bit sticky is because the New York Times reporting revealed that um, there were a number of meetings and presentations that took place with those investors and the, and the scientist investigators. And what the scientists did at that time, this is back in around 2013 and 2014, that they could provide the evidence that moderate daily drinking is beneficial. So they basically set up the, the question the same way I did. They said, look, we've got these observational studies, but in order for us to, to solidly come down on one side of this debate, we've got to do this study. And one of the scientists, in, in one of the slides that he presented, he said, a definitive clinical trial represents a unique opportunity to show that moderate alcohol consumption is safe and lowers risk of common diseases. That level of evidence is necessary if alcohol is to be recommended as part of a healthy diet. We have strong reason to suspect so, said another slide. And so basically, they weren't promising maybe that this would be the outcome of the study, but in order to convince the donors to donate, they were suggesting pretty specifically that it was likely the outcome would be beneficial to the alcohol industry. I see. So you feel any more nervous or kind of about the same? Um, I have a hard time believing there were, there were any sort of nefarious uh, intent behind this on the part of the researchers. Um, but I can't imagine this played well with the public when it came out. That is so true. The, the NIH has a policy that uh, really prohibits employees from soliciting or suggesting donations that support a specific activity. And so it raises questions basically of the independence of that study if you went out and specifically asked. And, and the other issue I think that is raised here is that these presentations gave the alcohol industry the opportunity to preview the trial. So they got to meet the investigators who actually eventually got picked to lead the study. They learned about where the clinical sites would be, the number of participants, the length of the trial. Um, they learned that the trial would allow the participants to choose uh, any form of alcohol. It wasn't that a single one, it wasn't going to be a class of wine study. It was going to be any type of alcohol it would be a Bud Light Lime a day for 10 years. A Rattler a day keeps the <laughs> something away. I don't know what it is. So there's an argument there that by revealing the study logistics, um, they kind of open themselves up to influence or at least to approval. So if they had said, we're going to do this with 100 million participants and we're only going to research wine, then the funders have the opportunity to say, well, we're not going to fund that. And so you're, you're basically angling for money by matching your trial to what could get funded, which is a little bit weird. On the other side, the, the counterpoint is that these presentations were made years before the study actually began. Um, and, and years before the trial design was actually finalized, the in investigator called the details in his presentation boilerplate. Like, if I were going to set up a study, here's a way I would do it. So it wasn't like the finalized research. Um, like, we're, we're going to give you, we're going to give these, these executives from uh, Budweiser the last look at the study and let them make some tweaks yeah, to the they final don't get to study sign design. Off. So it wasn't really at that level. Exactly. It wasn't at that level. But the, but the uh, executives did know... Uh, they did get to meet the scientists and they did know who they were. So um, it, it does open up a, a chance of influence there. But but I think the fact is it's important research. It's um, it's so pervasive in our culture and the research is so expensive and complex to do that if there there can be a way to do this in an unbiased fashion, I think it's a, it's a study worth doing. And so um, Francis Collins, good friend of yours. Yeah. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Is he? 
Why not? Yeah, sure. Why not? Great. He actually called a halt to study. And it, this was just a, a week or two ago. Um, and the goal is to review the process by which the money was solicited and to review the scientific merit of the study's design. Basically, to go back and say, wait, did the money come with no strings attached? And is the study still worth doing as it's designed? Is it still going to prove what we think is going to prove um, kind of with fresh eyes looking for any hints of influence? And so I think this is, this is fascinating. They're also looking to whether the NIH has a wider issue with funding sources, and there's some suggestion that they do. For example, there was a, a Dr. Collins rejected plans to use funds from the pharmaceutical industry to research opioid addiction and non-narcotic pain treatments. He said that was too close, that, that the results of the study might be biased. And even if they weren't biased, the public perception, like you mentioned, Josh, might be affected. But in Senate testimony recently, he said, I'm very concerned this might be the tip of a larger iceberg, adding that his investigators are looking for other examples at the NIH. Yeah, you know, Dan, this is this is a tough situation because, you know, in, in our country, the largest portion of medical research is funded by public funds, by taxpayer dollars. And there's certainly there certainly are some advantages to doing it that way. Uh, as we're seeing, I mean, the biggest one is when the when the financial capital comes from the taxpayer, then then the investigator is freed up from the whims and desires of a, of a private funder. However, as we know, Dan, uh, research dollars from public funds are limited and aren't guaranteed, and so you know the ability to rely on private money to answer additional research questions could also be very important. So I guess it's an interesting thing to ponder: are there ways to do it? Um, where we can answer more questions, we can fund more science in a way that minimizes bias or conflict of interest. Yeah, I probably presented this sounding more skeptical than I am. I have to say that uh, after after having reviewed Dr. Collins' testimony and uh, looking at how he stopped, he halted the study until they could investigate it in a more rigorous fashion, and the fact that he said, uh, when questioned by politicians, instead of saying, no, there's no problem, let's uh, move on, fake news, he said, oh, this might actually be a bigger problem and we're going to find out. I think what we're seeing is this eminent scientist is taking a scientific approach. He's saying, if there is an issue, we are going to uncover it. We're not going to be partisan about it. We're not going to try and sweep it under the rug. We're going to go find it and fix it. And I, I thought it was very refreshing to not have that kind of cover your um, response. Yeah. A, this is an important question. Let's find the answer to it. Isn't that nice? Wow. Is something know, wrong with that? I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> so we'll keep an eye on this and uh, present any updates as we hear them. And maybe in 10 years, we'll find out what the answer was. Well, in the meantime, uh, to try to lessen the burden of funding needed by NIH, I'm going to have a drink a day. Okay. And I'm going to keep copious notes. Good idea. Just on my self-study. Health. Yeah. 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 So. You'll have to blind yourself. I'm fit as a fiddle, Dan. Yeah. Some days you'll have Rattlers where they're 3.2%. <laughs> and some days... That's a good point. That's pro- that's a big difference. If I have this Rattler Huge. versus I have a triple IPA, you know, 10%. Huge, yeah. Some uh, dragon's milk. Oh, man. That was oh, that man. one was heavy. I'm going to mix a Rattler with dragon's milk and get... That is disgusting. Stop <laughs> it. All right, Dan. Let's move on to our topic. Dan, we have a listener question this week. We got a question from Zachary this week, Josh. Dear Josh and Daniel, 
I found your show recently while looking for information on imposter syndrome and appreciated listening so much I thought I would send in a question for you to ponder and maybe help me think through from a more distant and objective perspective. And Dan, actually, that was episodes 70 and 71. If anybody wants to hear that. Imposter syndrome, yeah. Important topics. Okay. I'm a first-year chemical engineering PhD student, and I'm currently working through a class-filled semester. For two of my classes, my midterm grades were much less than than desirable for me. Now, I'm not the quickest when it comes to math, so a lower score in classes like transport compared to other students has been the norm, but these scores are even lower than what I usually expect. Nerves have been a typical part of my exam state of mind, but past experience has shown that I can usually overcome them. I feel like I understand the concepts, and my homework and quiz grades for the class would seem to indicate that. However, the tests have gotten the best of me both times. I have to maintain a certain GPA, and while I don't know what the final grades will be yet, I feel like I should be doing better. I guess my real question is, are class grades indicative of whether or not a PhD is right for me? I have a master's and have done research for more than three years, so I feel that the actual research portion of the program will not be the issue. And every time I get to talk research with my lab group and new advisor, I love it. For now, it just seems like my grades aren't indicating that I'm a good enough student for the program, and I really don't want that to be the case. I plan on talking to my advisor about it all soon, as well as older grad students. Would appreciate hearing from both of you if you have time, or even being directed to another resource if you have one. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your show. Yeah, wow, Zachary, thanks for that question. And, and Dan, this is actually something that I do have some thoughts about. I would like to hear those thoughts, Josh, because that, that I mean, it feels pretty heavy because he's doing well in the research. He loves the research, which we talk about all the time, that if you love research, go do research. It's, this is for you. But these classes, they're getting in the way. And it's not the material, it sounds like. It sounds like he's doing well when he has the time and the ability to do the quizzes and homework on it in his own time, but it's the tests and the tests take him down. And we've, you know, I think we've all known somebody or we've been that person that experiences that. So do you, do you jump off the rocket ship to your dreams because of those tests? Well, do you want my quick answer? You should or just say, yep, answer? jump off. That's it. Uh, no. Okay, great. Yeah. TLDR. No. Okay. Uh, but let me unpack that a little bit. Um, so I want to kind of, I'm going to get on a little bit of an educational philosophy soapbox for a minute. If that's okay. Don't get any splinters. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I'm talking about America. I don't know. I can't speak for, for all countries, but um, our educational system that I know the most about, we, we have been for a long time and, and mostly continue to be, if not even more so, um, to be very grade and test score centric. Would you say that's true? Uh, I am beginning to notice that as my kids start to be old enough to go to school and it makes me a little sad. Okay, really sad. Yeah, I mean, my my wife is a, a high school teacher, and, and my kids obviously in elementary school, and and here in North Carolina at least, they were doing their end of grade testing last week, and and that involved the, like sitting in a, a room for for three or four hours in the morning, and it's super strict. You know, you can't leave, no phones, no food. But you know, Dan, and especially as you advance from elementary to middle to high school, and high school and college especially, can you can you remember how important grades seemed? The most important, right? That was the that measure. Was the point, of, right? Yeah, whether you were a good human being or not. Yeah, and and you know, I think especially, you know, I'm going to make some assumptions about Zachary and and us and other people who who are on an educational trajectory that ends them in a science PhD program. Now, chances are, you probably succeeded in some academic setting to some degree at some point. But think about what that what that really means when you get a good grade on a test in your organic chemistry class, what does that mean? Does that mean you 
you learned organic chemistry the best out of anyone in the class compared to the guy three rows back who got a B minus? Probably not. I mean, I can remember, you know, Dan, my experience, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, my experience as an undergraduate, I always did pretty well in coursework. Dan, you know, I like games. You love games. I love games. And almost everything to me, every challenge or, or every task that I'm faced with, I look at it and I like to think, how do you win this? And, and so classes to me, I approached to some degree like a game. Each individual class, I take a look at the syllabus and I think, what is the win condition of this class? Uh, in, in other words, what do you have to do specifically? What gears do you have to turn to get the, the best grade in this class? So what you weren't asking is, how can I just absorb all the amazing information that I'm so excited to learn? Yeah, no, it had nothing to do with learning anything. Or in love the class. of the topic. Um, and you know what? I did really well at, at getting good grades. But here's the thing when I got to graduate school and had my coursework, yeah, actually, it was really hard because I realized even though I had had biochemistry before in undergrad, I didn't remember any of it because learning was not the objective. However, even though I feel like I didn't learn a whole lot, if you looked at my transcript, you would have thought I was an ace in biochemistry. So you figured out the game of testing and you won the game of testing. Um, and, and I think I was the same way, Josh. It was, uh, I, I had the ability to memorize the things I needed to memorize up to the moment the test dropped. And then maybe five years later, I probably couldn't do it anymore. But Yeah, and so, so I guess what I'm getting at... Um, to bring this around, I'm, I'm saying that we use grades and tests to evaluate performance in coursework. However, it's, we don't necessarily know that getting a good grade in a class actually correlates with the degree to which you have learned something in that class. Does that make sense? It does. They're not precisely the same thing, although one would imagine you would have to at least cursorily learn the subject in order to get the grade, right? I mean, I think so, but let's look at, at Zachary's example. Yeah, he does okay on the homework and the quizzes, but these exams, right, the, the grade he's getting on these exams doesn't seem to match up with that. And that's usually most of the grade you get at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, especially in grad school. And I'll say too, Dan, um, at the undergraduate level and, and the high school level too, often you're, the people teaching those classes, in a lot of cases, are people who who take teaching, the craft of teaching, very seriously. Um, not always, but I know a lot of undergraduate lecturers um, who are very serious about their teaching. And so, so this conversation about making sure your assessments, your exams, are actually measuring learning objectives that are very clearly laid out to students. This is something that professional educators think a lot about. I know my wife and her colleagues, uh, they talk about this in conferences, they talk about this in meetings. Uh, these are things they really try to do. Pedagogy, we call it. Exactly. But what do you know about the people who taught your graduate school courses? They wish they were in lab and they wish they were not standing in front of this class. Yeah, I mean, especially at a large research institution, you know, it's not their fault, but teaching is not incentivized even in the requirements for them getting tenure. It might be a requirement. Their chair says you have to teach this class, but teaching it well is not necessarily something they are incentivized to spend time to do. Yeah, what you're not saying is that there aren't good professors at the grad school level, because I, I had some that were great. Oh, I, did I had too. some I did terrible, too. terrible, terrible professors. I had some that... And you mean in your, in your coursework? In my coursework, yeah. I, I had some that knew the subject so well and could explain these complex topics 
so cleanly with analogies and with examples and stuff that I will remember for the rest of my life because of how they taught it. And then I had some that stood there, read the notes that they had read for the last 50 terms and, and everybody was asleep in five minutes. So I, I feel like the, the range of quality was quite high. Yeah, but you know what? Did it necessarily matter? Some of those faculty who were the worst had been teaching the class for 10 years before you took it and were probably teaching it 10 years after you left. Yeah, it didn't change who was teaching. That's true. So, um, Dan, you know that I've been involved in research that looks at factors that correlate with how well grad students actually perform in science PhD programs. I do know that. <laughs> uh, and one of the things we... You never let me forget it, Josh. <laughs> it's all I talk about. If you follow me on Twitter, you wish I'd shut up about it. That's probably. good. It's really good. Uh, but, but, you know, we found that GREs are particularly bad at predicting who will actually do well in a research-based PhD program. And it's not just our research, but lots of different places have done similar studies and found that getting a high GRE score doesn't necessarily correlate with things like getting publications or getting fellowships or passing your prelim. Time to graduation. Time to graduation. None of these uh, important metrics for how well a graduate student is actually doing in grad school. Um, but there's one, there is one feature of, of performance in grad school that GRE scores do consistently seem to track with, and that is performance in first-year classes or first-year GPA. Okay, so if you are good at taking the GRE test, you may also be good at taking other tests. That's right. That's exactly Neat. right. And, and so this is something that's been seen um, in several different places, uh, in several different types of studies. But I feel like there is an important question, almost an elephant in the room, I think, that is not being asked. And that is, if the GRE does not correlate with all these measures of how students do in grad school, but the GRE does correlate with how well students do in their first year classes, then is there any correlation between first-year classes and how well you actually are going to do as a graduate student? I think it's a great question. Did you ask that of your data? I'm you, asked, uh, no, you, you know, must we, have it, right? The data. Uh, we, we haven't looked at that, actually. We haven't really examined that, but my guess would be, I mean, how could it? I don't know. You should find <laughs> out. I should find you out. don't uh, wildly speculate on this show except for the first half and the second half. <laughs> so I, I guess thinking about these data that, that we have seen, uh, this is kind of a roundabout way to address Zachary's question. No, I mean, you know, having struggles on your exams in these courses in no way is indicative of your ability to be a successful researcher. And I think that's, you know, as I'm reading this email, Zachary, you've got everything going for you as far as I'm concerned. And Dan, and then you mentioned this too. In terms of career success, in terms of long-term viability in a research based career. It yeah. sounds like he's got what he needs. Yeah, let's let's completely wipe the classroom part out of his experience right now and, and read this email. You know, he's saying I'm I'm understanding concepts in my classes. I love talking research with my lab group, my new advisor. I love it. Yeah, it's the enthusiasm that I think I lacked and and hurt me, but he's got it. He loves it. Uh it's just these classes. Yeah, would you would you rather if you were a betting man, Dan? And, and had oh, a, I am. <laughs> and, and, you know, you had somebody like, like Zachary who maybe, you know, these classes are, you know, are, are challenging or kind of a struggle, but he's loving lab. He's loving his, his PI. He's loving the research he's doing. Uh, but the class are not going great. No, it's specifically tests aren't going great. Right, you're right, right. The tests aren't going great versus somebody who's killing the coursework, but they're like, hey, you know what? This lab thing. This is boring. Eh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, 
that sounds like me. <laughs> uh, that's true. Oh, it's funny because it's sad. But but you know I, what I'm not saying is that that it's not important to pass your classes because as as Zachary mentioned, a lot of times that is a requirement for staying in grad school. But you know what concerns me is Zachary sounds like he's letting it get him down and questioning his ability to be in the program. Which from what I know from from what he told us, I would say Zachary, you can do it and you should be there. And grades are BS, and I don't know what else to say. We should probably leave it on on that high note. Um, I do <laughs> want to grades I, are BS. Grades are BS. I don't know what else to say. Drop the mic. Uh, I do want to say one thing because specifically, Zachary, you're talking about the tests, and there is a well known case where people can have test anxiety, or there can be aspects of the way tests are administered that people with learning differences may not be able to read the questions fast enough or they feel anxious about the process or whatever it is. And I think if that, if there's something surrounding testing that particularly activates you or, or, or gets you distracted or upset, it'd be worth getting tested for some kind of learning difference because then you may be able to get access to more time on tests or access to a different test environment, maybe where it's less distracting, something like that. If that is the case, if you are understanding the concepts, but it's just the the moment of getting there and the test distracts you or makes you make mistakes, I think there are ways to work around that. Yeah, there was a, a student that I worked with who, who was in a very similar situation. You know, things were going really well in the lab, but but he was really struggling with with some of the exam scores. And all he did was he went up and had a conversation with the instructor in the course who who definitely knew that he was very engaged uh, during the in-class assignments and he participated in class, but uh, but the grades themselves were, were a struggle. And it turned out one of the things he was having trouble with was finishing in time. With the, it was, this was a timed in-class test. And so the instructor just gave him permission to have additional time. And so he got to take the test in a different room where he had as much time as he needed to complete it. And you know what, Dan, his grades completely went up when just that one portion of the timed aspect was, was taken away. So, you know, one, one potentially straightforward piece of advice could be just have a conversation with the instructor of, of your class and, and just be really upfront with some of the struggles and, and tell that person exactly what you told, told us, that you feel like you're understanding the concepts, but the translation of that understanding to doing well on the exam is, seems to be a challenge. And, and you never know. You may, you know, I think most, most instructors, especially at the graduate school level, they, they want to help you. They are more concerned with learning than grades. Yeah, I think that's right. And I want to say, for me, the classes were were valuable because it gave me a broader perspective into fields that I would never have studied in my research topic. You know, I, I was so focused on, on a particular protein that I wouldn't have taken the time to go understand how a kidney works because it wasn't, I wasn't going to collide with that in my work. But, but by taking those classes, I, I kind of broadened my scientific training. I had an appreciation for talks that I went to um, in other departments and with researchers studying other things. So there's value in the content. There's value in the learning. And I think the question, I think what you're saying, Josh, is the grade itself is not the goal. The, the learning, the uh, acquisition of knowledge, the expansion of your worldview is, is the, what you need out of those classes. That We're not trying to say classes should be cut out of grad school. It's that we should find a way to actually assess learning, not to assess can you fill out bubble sheets. I think that's right. All right, Josh. Well, hopefully that helps Zachary. Uh, Zachary, please write to us. Let us know if, if that kind of addressed your question or because it's been a little bit of time since you wrote to us. Maybe you have uh, done some of these things already. We'd love to hear from you. 
uh, other students who maybe have struggled with the same thing and gotten through it, or maybe struggled with the same thing and left the program or didn't get through it, we would love to hear from you to be able to provide your feedback to listeners on what's a very important topic and another way that grad students feel isolated and left out and that nobody else is like them when it's just not true. Every Everybody's going through something like this. Yeah, and I want to say too, we love it when our listeners write in and, and ask us questions. So if there's something you're going through and you'd like for us to talk about on the show, we'd love for you to send that question in and we'll answer it on the show if we can. All right, Josh, time for some word origins. All right, let me have it. The clue last week was, take an umbrella, that heap of clouds means a thunderstorm is headed this way. Okay, so this is a type of clouds, cloud formation? It is a good guess. It is a type of cloud. Do you, do you have a list of cloud formations off the top of your head? Okay. Uh, and particularly one that brings uh, thunderstorms. Uh, I think the only one I know is, is it cumulus. That is a, an answer I would accept. Really? That's, yeah. I think that's the only one. There's one, uh, what is it? Strat- Stratus. Stratus. Yeah, Stratus, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the answer I was looking for was cumulonimbus, and that comes from the Latin cumulus. Meaning cumulonimbus 3000. Exactly. I think they were uh, Harry Potter brooms, right? The Nimbus 5000, yeah, right. something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yep. So uh, cumulus from Latin meaning a heap, a pile, a mass, or surplus, and nimbus meaning cloud. If you've seen these clouds, they, they're the really tall ones that look like big puffy cotton balls all stacked up on each other and then the rain pours down so we've had some of those in our weather this week which is where that came from okay josh our winner this week and again i accepted both cumulus and cumulonimbus because my puzzle was not worded precisely enough to uh, differentiate the two but the winner this week was megan from brown university all right, congr- congrats, Megan. We'll be sending you an Amazon gift card, Josh. And uh, not you, Josh. Woo-hoo, We're going to Megan. Okay. <laughs> and I will read the clue for next week. Ancient Greeks speculated about a particle so small it was uncuttable. Read it one more time. Ancient Greeks speculated about a particle so small it was uncuttable. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan, thanks for that. If you have a question or a topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, like Irene, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money and would love to see you in our Slack channel just for our patrons. All right, Dan, I am finishing up this Tasty Rattler. I don't always finish this the beer we be drink. This may be the most ethanol I've seen you drink in a long time. Yeah, I mean, usually you know, while recording the show, I oftentimes, I guess because I'm, I'm running my mouth so much, I don't drink a lot of the beer, but you can see my glass stand almost empty. You, you did solid work on it. Maybe because it's about half the gravity of a normal beer we drink, you got through more of it. I don't know. Maybe I'm a Rattler guy. So I'm going to finish this last drink, Dan, and then we will get out of here. We'll see you next time, Josh. <laughs>